Welcome to The Third Wheel. This is episode 4 of The Dragon Reborn. Today we are going to talk about chapters 28 through 36 in the third book of The Wheel of Time. I am Tyler, one of your hosts, and joining me are... Bion. And... Jesse, the other, other host. Yeah. I totally forgot to come up with an intro, but that's okay. Quick. I'll pay you a gold mark just for your trouble of having to listen to me think of one on the spot, and five more from each of us three hosts if you let us get away with me not having thought of one until right now. I'm not allowed to let you leave. Wow. I'm not allowed to let you leave, sir. Listen, it's fine. I have this paper... Oh, he actually has it. He actually has it. I have this paper from the Omerlin seat. And by the way, during the first part of that intro, I actually tried to hand Beown my little fake gold mark. I have this paper from the Omerlin. Listen, I'm going to do like Matt. Can you read it? It says I'm allowed to go. ASMR. Yeah. Wow. That kind of fell apart. But... It was completely improvised, so I think that's I, I would never have known. <laughs> yeah, does anybody... I mean, this section is very, like, transitional, which I'm fine with, because it's actually... Like, nothing in it is standout great, but for being just a bunch of transitional chapters, it's actually not bad. Would you call it a way out? I would certainly say that for... At least one of the characters we're going to focus on, they receive a way out. Maybe even two. Two characters, not two ways. Yeah, not a ton happens in this section, although there is going to be a bit at the end worth talking about. Yeah. Well, then let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, we start with chapter 28, A Way Out. Uh, Matt's in his room, wearing no shirt, just his pants, like a chad. He's eating a light uh, snack of ham, bread, butter, and three apples. That sounds delicious. He's like, yeah, breakfast was 20 minutes ago. I gotta get something in my belly before lunch. I wish I'm I lived his through. life. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag same. So the Wonder Squad knocks and enters. They don't knock. He comments that they don't knock. You know, I didn't put in my notes that they knocked, but I, uh, like, back going back through in my mind, I was like, they must have knocked, I just no. didn't write it down. No. I, pu I pulled the quote. Please. They could have at least knocked. In any case, it was good to see their faces. At first it was. <laughs> Matt's perspective is good. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Matt gets no boundaries. Yeah. Um, yeah he they gets all... pushed around by the Wonder Squad a lot, yeah. and this yeah. happens going forward. I mean, he deserves it. <laughs> yeah, they all are trying to manipulate him in their own ways. They want him to bring a letter to Morgays from Elaine. So Elaine tries being pretty. And, and imperious. Yeah, and when that doesn't work, she's like, you all said it would work on him. Why isn't it working? Uh, Egwene tries to just be a bully, as per usual. And Nenave, like, goes down the list of reasons that he can't and is like, okay, well, if we solve that, can you go? 
until he runs out of reasons. I mean, uh, they, they essentially do the classic Aes Sedai lowball technique. Yeah. Where they give him what they tell him what they want, and then he overpromises. He says, the Amerlin made it so I can't get it off get off the island, but if you could solve that, I would do it gladly. And they're like, we just so happen have a way to get you off the island. Coincidentally. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, speaking of like them doing a classic I said I move, uh, I was just last night listening to a section in Fires of Heaven where Nenev is like, I should give an answer that sounds like an Aesidai, and she like quotes Moraine from book one. What has Moraine done to us? Yeah, basically. But in her own head, she's like, I guess that's fine. That's a normal thing to say. It's like they're being transformed. Yeah, so they give him one of the two notes from Suan that says, hey, let him do whatever. And then afterwards, there's a bit of them just, like, hanging out and reminiscing for a bit. Yeah, I noted that, too. Robert Jordan doesn't usually bother with this stuff, but it's really important. Yeah, it's really nice that they're just, like, sitting down talking about the good old days. Being teens. Yeah. Yeah, Matt's 19. And most of the girls are 17. Yeah. Like, Robert Jordan's attention to detail is generally about setting stuff, but... Just giving us a skimming of this conversation gives us a lot more of these characters and makes them feel like actual people that get along with each other and would talk to each other outside of plot reasons. Mm -hmm. And that's nice to get every once in a while. Rather than being told that they get along, actually reading it and understanding that they do. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, after they're done with this... Matt says You'll something You'll never catch to... me. I'm the gingerbread man. <laughs> He's like, you've all done me a great service. I know I was giving you a hard time, but if you need me, call. And they have a little laugh. I pulled this out because it's still... I don't know. It sticks out every time I read it. They still have a laugh about the thing that happened with Huron. And um, I forget who says it. It might be Nenev says, if a woman does need a hero, she needs him today, not tomorrow. In response to him saying, if you need me, call, and then I will come. Which, hey, sure would be great if Matt could be a hero today, and not tomorrow, (laughs) at any point where they need him. Is this foreshadowing? I don't know. We'll find out three episodes from now. If is I'm this fortunate. Robert Jordan discussing emotional labor and relationships 30 years before his time? Whoa. Whoa. Matt thinks about how he can get enough money by dicing to get out of Tarvalin, and we're free from him being locked in the room. Um, which brings us to chapter 29, A Trap to Spring. I will admit here, in full view of the light and everyone that walks with it. The spit dogs are real. Yes. <laughs> the spit dogs turn up like five times in this section. I know. I yeah. yeah, it gets kind of egregious. The like number of times that I kept turning the page and being like, spit dogs again, huh? Like, I already know I'm wrong. Dogs. 
Yeah, they specifically talk about the spit dogs running on their little wheels. And being brindle patterned. Yeah. Those dogs don't exist anymore. No, they all went to the spits. Well, no, we we explicitly made them come into creation. And then once we no longer needed them, and by we, I mean westernized countries, they, they no longer had a purpose. I mean, they're probably just part of all of our mutts now. Yeah. Yeah, so the spit dogs are real because Nineveh is in the kitchens with Eggy and Elaine. She's turning the spit and giving side eye to the dog that should be doing the job. Yeah, she's like, I hate you, dog. <laughs> um, which makes sense because dogs hate Ace Sedai. Wait, is that a thing? Yeah. Because gender. Yeah, cats love Ace Sedai and dogs hate them, and it's vice versa for male channelers. Really? Yeah. Is that because all dogs are male and all cats are female? Don't worry about it, but also yes. Nothing is wrong about this dynamic. Yeah, I really hate the dogs are male, cats are female dynamic. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So we get a little bit of background on how the kitchens run, which I only mentioned because the fat cook, Laris, is important one other time in this story. Yeah. so I'm setting the seeds right now. Uh, Suan like comes in. The only woman in the series that isn't like plumply pretty. Yeah, she's just fat. <laughs> Great stuff, Robert Jordan. Yeah. Can uh, insert David Cage evil cause fat here. Uh, there, so there's Suan... an applicable David Cage for everything. <sighs> Sad but true. Suhan comes in, she's acting really imperious uh, in order to, like, scare people away so that they don't listen in. And then she comes up with something to get rid of Laris that, sadly, also catches Elaine and Eggie. So she's now just talking with Nenev, which is good, because these are two... I mean, Suhan's not, like, a great character, but... They're not literal teenagers. They're not teenagers. And I would rather have a conversation with Nenev and Suhan than Nenev and... Elaine. Yeah. What is the point of Elaine? She has plot relevance later. She just doesn't yet. Okay. I mean, she's pretty plot relevant right now. She's just not very distinctive as a character. Yeah, I guess the things that she does right now are important. I just mean, like, right now, she's kind of a third body in this group of young female channelers that are very powerful and are not like following the tower structure whereas later on she is like more than just a third person in this group she has her own things that don't overlap with anybody else okay just not for another four books Uh, yeah, so Nenev and Suan have this very excellent conversation. Uh, Nenev tells her everything that's happened, except about the Terrantula Tarangriel, which seems like a weird thing to leave out, because she's like, I know we can trust Varen, but we can't trust Suan. It's like, yeah, strange stuff. Like, dog, Suan is literally the only person, besides the other members of the Wonder Squad, that you know for a fact is not Black Alja. Because she would have just killed you if she was. Like, you you know literally nothing about anybody else, but this is the hill you're choosing to die on. Nenev's very petty. Yeah. She gets better. Uh, Suan informs her 
yes, here's where we find out that Pigtail Tour is fake news. Um, <laughs> so all of the Black Asha stuff got burned pretty much immediately. So everything that they found was a plant. And also uh, Pigtails has been gone for over a week. And they ran into her like two days ago. So something's fishy. Suwon's all over it because it's fishy. Yeah. She's like, I haven't made a metaphor about this yet. <laughs> we get some background info on the colander. Uh, it's one of the three most powerful Sa'angriel ever made. We only got and... to call it the colander once per episode. And I just made it twice. Wait, really? <laughs> Why are we only limited to that? Because it could be confusing. That's fair. What is it actually? Calandor. Calan. Don't do this. Wait. Don't do this. Calan? Are we are we talking about the sword of truth now? Oh no. <laughs> I'm ending my recording. <laughs> Thankfully the two stronger Sa'angriel were never actually used. Thinking emoji. Look, there's a gun over the mantle place. Anybody using are we really limited to one? Because I really just want to keep calling it the colander. Eh, fine. Listen, you put the colander, and then the bowl of the winds is... Anybody using Kalendor could destroy a city with a single weave. Seems pretty early in the series to establish such a powerful artifact, don't you think? Hmm. They're gonna have a shonen upgrade. Well... Like, the calendar specifically has reasons that it is that strong. But yes, it's... Beyond, it's worse than that, by the way. Worse than a shonen upgrade with the power of friendship and teamwork and believing in yourself? I mean, the answer is literally the power of friendship, I think. Well, we'll get to it at the beginning of book four about why this doesn't break the series, but it sucks. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. It's really cool. Never mind. We'll get to it. Um... So, nobody can touch it except the Dragon Reborn, which we already knew. And Suan says, okay, well, if you're going to Tyr to spring this trap and get caught in it, then I'm going to give you money so that you can get there. And then when the other two come back and Suan is gone, then Dave passes the info along. She also says to compliment the fat chef. Yes, who continues to be mildly rude. She's just so fat and evil. (laughs) <laughs> i mean i'd rather have a fat chef than a skinny chef the phrase is never trust a skinny chef i mean yeah. rand says earlier in the series that he won't trust skinny innkeepers right yeah well not after that one guy tried to kill him oh yeah i also feel like we should be keeping a running count of the amount of described inns and taverns <sighs> okay. there's a ton okay well, we haven't been counting so far, so we're going to start the count at 200, which I think is about where we're at so far. Yeah, there's like six in this section. Yeah, I really, like, the world building, there's a lot of it, but also, does it actually matter? Do you think he went to a lot of inns to really get in character for writing the scenes? I don't know. These were written in like the 90s. Are there a lot of inns around? Inns, pubs, I don't know. Mm-hmm. He was in South Carolina. What do they have in South Carolina besides racism and good barbecue? Heat. Lots of heat. Oh. Alcohol. Alcohol. So yeah, uh, taverns and inns. I guess. 
Uh, it brings us to chapter 30, The First Toss. So Matt's in his room preparing to escape. Uh, he's squirreling away food, getting his stuff packed, and um, whenever What's-Her-Face shows up, he's lying to Ace Sedai, which, hey, good stuff, my dude. Uh, he specifically calls out, like, this is the smile I use when I'm hoping to get away with something. And she clearly does not believe him. You're hiding something, sir. Yeah, he's very suspicious at all times. Uh, when he finally does leave, uh, it's so obvious that he's leaving that everybody is staring at him. And he says, if you can't hide what you are going to do, do it so everybody thinks you are a fool. Then they stand around waiting to see you fall on your face. And it's not that this is like a great quote. It's that I had it written down for my first read as Matt is a font of wisdom. Because he's really bad. Like he keeps throwing out all of these phrases throughout this section and none of them are good. High school yearbook quote. Yeah. Matt's whole life is a high school yearbook quote. But they let him out of the tower, and so he's going around the taverns and inns of the city, and he literally cannot lose. Uh, his two silver marks become 30. He visits a money changer and then has to do that two more times to keep up with how much money he's making. Yeah. There's a section in here where it sort of talks about how he's developing sort of a feverish affect over the course of the night. Mm -hmm. And it's actually like actual writing as opposed to what wow. the series normally is and it's... i enjoyed it a lot i only want to read matt yeah we all only want to read matt it's just so refreshing yeah at one point somebody accuses or not accuses but says the dark one's own luck and matt like freaks out are you talking about me how dare you are you calling I'm me not a dark, dark friend? friend yeah uh, very defensive. He leaves, checking to make sure that he still has more money than he can count. He's like, he has two purses full of money and also some stuffed in his pockets and also some stuffed in his pouch and also just, like, some money in random pockets around his bags. Like, he's basically trailing money. And he decides it's time to get out of town. Um, he's followed by a few people with knives as he makes his way towards where he can find a boat out of the city. And he's, like, making his way across the rooftops. Um, rooftops? He's a ninja. Doesn't that happen at one point? Yeah, he is across the rooftops for part of it. Yeah, see? Oh, I totally missed that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I don't remember if he gets down before the gray man finds him, or if the gray man finds him and then they jump off the third floor of this building. But... It happens in one order or the other. Yeah, a gray man finds him, and Matt, like, is in a clinch with him and then throws himself off a ledge, landing on top of the gray man, and also the gray man's knife went into his own heart during the fall. Yeah, all this, like, gray man invisibility never seems to work right. No. Generic villain well, is having a bad time. It's working... Or it's not working on Tavarin, who, like, are the people who should be noticing just by random chance. Like, it sounds like they are a huge problem if you are not Tavarin. If you're just common, normal, everyday folk. 
Yeah. Everyday sheep herders. Yeah, like if you just can't see this person because random chance doesn't let you, then too bad, so sad. So that brings us to chapter 31, The Woman of Tanchico, which is where it's the name of the inn that Matt ducks into very quickly. Because he hears some interesting music. Yeah. Um, There's a familiar face playing the harp. It's Tom. Tom's here. Um, So when Matt sits down, he doesn't have to wait long for Tom to come over. And uh, Tom is now an alcoholic, having a multi-week pity party binge. Is he now an alcoholic, or is he just acting upon it now? I mean, I think he... I don't know. He always talked about enjoying alcohol, but he's also old, so like maybe it's just an indulgence of the old people. I well, don't know. This whole thing is supposed to be him wallowing over Denna, which yeah. what a great use of that character. Yeah. Oh, I so love it when women die for men to express a single emotion. That emotion is alcohol and murder, apparently. The yeah, murder. you know, she inspired him to take action. The murder of the king, some might say. And Matt orders three whole chickens. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, they could be small chickens. Uh, I don't know. I don't I have... think I could eat a whole small chicken. Like a Cornish game hen? That's so easy to eat a whole chicken. B. No. <laughs> Bad. Sorry. It's not a challenge. Yeah, so they finally make it out of the building three chickens later. Yeah. Another thing I want to mention is that this scene also has that thing I talked about where someone goes through a traumatic experience and then five minutes later is acting like nothing ever happened. Who needs therapy? It's not even like therapy, but Matt is just acting very casual and I don't know. About killing those people? Yeah, he just killed someone. And I don't know, has he... Yeah, he killed someone in a conscious state before. Well, maybe he doesn't remember any of the people he's killed. Yeah, I was going to say, like, retroactively unconscious. Yeah. Because doesn't at some point during this chapter he says something about, I've killed three people now? Yeah. later later on on the boat. boat. Later on the boat, okay. Yeah. But it's like, here, he... Because this happened earlier with Egwene and Nanave when they get tried to assassinate it by the Grey Man, and they just go straight to gossiping five minutes later. Yeah. And... The same thing happens with Matt here. What Things just seem to slide off these characters. Like water off a duck's back. In addition to Matt killing that guy, which could at least be construed as like, well, he attacked me and I just set us off the bridge. It's not my fault that he like, got knifed in the heart on the way down. And I could have just as easily landed on the bottom as he did. So it was just random chance that he's the one that died. Like, in addition to that, Tom pretty quickly gets over this Denna thing. Like, wow. I think it continues to be an issue going forward in, like, it sounds like it is, but I don't know that it affects his actions in any way. What a I'm so sad. Yeah. Continues to not change his behavior whatsoever. I'm, I'm sad about this woman I got killed. So sad that I'm going to kiss these young girls at this inn before I leave. And Matt swears they'll get on the first ship out of there. The first ship. Yeah. Um, Because, yeah, he's bringing Tom with him. So, hey, chapter 32, the first ship. 
they reach the he docks. He really means it. Yeah. They reach the docks and using the Omerlin's paper, which Matt is just like shaking around, uh, he gets onto the ship. Uh, they, like, he, jump onto it as it's leaving. Yeah, he has to do, like, a run and jump. and then Tom, Yeah, and Tom has to do the same thing. Yeah, I would just throw him off after that. Yeah. Uh, he uses more lying to secure their passage, and then starts flashing money to make sure that they get a room and food. I really yeah. wonder about Matt's survival instincts sometimes, because why would you flash around that you have money? Just mm. suck it up and sleep on the ship. Like the floor of the ship or whatever they call it. The deck. Yeah, that would be smart. But also... Oh, go for it. (laughs) No, it's just... I don't know. Matt, why? Why are you so cocky, Matt? It's a good question. What have you done? But also Tom here does the thing that Tyler likes, and I like too, where a character reacts to the position another character is in. It's like... Why do you have a letter from the Omerlin seat? What has been going on with you? Why are yeah. you so cool? Like, why are you... Why is it that every time you move, like, coins fall out of your pockets? Why do you have the letter from the Omerlin? Why are you leaving? Why did you just eat three chickens? <laughs> like, tell me what is going on. And Matt's like, no you. And then we get, like, three pages of exposition about Tyr via yeah. this Tyran boat captain yammering on and on which is an interesting way to do oblique exposition but it also just goes on for three pages yeah i have it summarized as one sentence that says uh, this amounts to quote this dude named salmon in tier is manipulating everyone make tier great again unquote (laughs) pretty much the other bullet points is that he doesn't like ilioners or Aes Sedai. Yeah, he's... And you're supposed to generalize that to all tyrants. Yeah. So, get good, tier. Just be aware in the future that every tyrant we meet is those two things. They don't like Ilian, and they don't like the power. They have two traits. <laughs> Which, hey, makes them a lot better than a lot of characters in this series. So, after going to bed... Matt thinks about how he's been manipulated into this task, which isn't strictly true, but it's also not not true. Very Aes Sedai. Yeah. And then some people try to break in, but luckily Matt's quick on the draw with the quarterstaff, and he just kills two of them immediately. As one does. As one does. While he's like sleeping in his underwear next to tom and he wakes up and just kills a couple guys yeah he and tom are spooning in their underwear and then matt (laughs) jumps up and grabs the quarterstaff and kills two dudes uh it's not gay if there's murder (laughs) is that is that the rule i just made it okay so he makes his way up to the deck and kills another person and then there's a fourth that's about to get him and decides to swim away well tom is there and he throws a knife and kills that dude and then there's two more and the other two are like by the great lord we gotta get out of here and so they quickly run away yeah matt decides like that was enough excitement for one night and he goes back to bed while people that work on the ship are yelling about like why is this guy unconscious? Why are all these people on my ship dead? 
yeah, it's like it very quickly ends because Matt's just like, I'm tired. I'm going back to sleep. This is your problem now. Uh, and then we cut to Rand, who is thinking back on all of the dreams that he's had where somebody tries to kill him. Um, we get a little bit of a hint that he's into Elaine, and then he continues to sleep. Or not sleep, for multiple days at a time. You know, because he's uh, the image of mental health. He kind of makes me think of um, in Castaway, where uh, the Tom Hanks character starts screaming at Wilson. <laughs> That's kind he of doesn't even image. have a Wilson. He doesn't even have a Wilson. He's just screaming. <laughs> I've never seen Castaway, but if it's what I'm thinking of, he might have a Wilson later on. You too can have a Wilson. Three books from now. Is Wilson like an imaginary character that is speaking to him? Mm, it's a volleyball that he painted a face onto that he talks to to stay sane. Oh, well then, yes, but in a different book. <laughs> so many Wilsons. Uh, so that brings us to chapter 33, Within the Weave. We're back to Perrin. Yay. I like Perrin. Uh, so he, Lan, Moraine, and Loyal are still traveling south. They've been passing through a number of villages that have had strange stuff happening. Uh, and it's all clearly Rand's fault. But this time it's bad stuff, not just mischievous stuff. And parents well, one of, concerned. One of the stuff is good, and three of them are bad. And Perrin decides that that means that they are all bad. They do not balance each other out. Correct. Um, and for the second time in this section, we hit this beat that life only is really happening if there's both good and evil. Perrin asks Moraine, like, I can't believe Rand is evil. The pattern may be shaping itself around him, but how can the pattern be that evil? Whoa, he's stupid. <sighs> this boy is dumb. Uh, yeah, so so we... Moraine has to explain to him that the pattern is neither good or bad. Yeah. Like... Uh, so the group reaches a Remen, and they find a man in a cage having stones thrown at him by children. And a gibbet? I assume it's pronounced gibbet. I've read it before, but I don't know how to pronounce it. Jesse, cut this out. It's just kind of a nasty... Yeah, it's pronounced gibbet. Uh, and a gibbet is being raised for his execution. Um, they reach the inn that they'll be staying at, which is very lavishly described. Uh, everybody's in really nice clothes. The innkeeper sucks. You know how it is. Capitalism. Capitalism. Uh, the group gets flattered to the point of eye-rolling. I don't remember if Perrin actually rolls his eyes or just thinks about doing it, but it's definitely there. But it works on Loyal. Yes. Um, one of the Hunters of the Horn, staying at the establishment, limps down the stairs to complain about his pain and tell the story of how 12 of them face 20 Aiel, and the only one that they didn't kill or chase off is in the cage outside. So it's a ginger in the cage. Yes. It is. Well, yeah. Uh, Lan is like, wow, 12 of you. 20 Aiel, huh? And Moraine's like, this is dumb. Take me to my room. This conversation is done. We're done. We're leaving. You're all done. Uh, Perrin reaches the top of the stairs, turns back around, and sees a woman that is so well described she must be a main character staring at him 
<laughs> Protagonist also, energy. Also, she's wearing skirts, divided for riding. So you know she's important. Which brings us to chapter 34, A Different Dance. Perrin is still thinking about this lady that was checking him out, and there's an Aeolman in a cage? I think there's some sort of prophecy about this, given by somebody that they know. Min's prophecies always come true, and he's very upset about that. Also, and that the innkeeper mis- tells them about the prophet and Gildan. Yeah, this guy who... It's Masima. He sucks. Miasma. He kind of is, actually. Perrin decides that he needs to go and see the Aiel again after a lot of thinking and to try and figure out what's up with this prophecy. Uh, on his way, he stops to talk to Moraine, who confirms to him that the woman in the common room isn't a dark friend. She was just checking him out because he's hot. Perrin has all the survival skills of the group. Perrin has the survival skills of a rock. <laughs> well, at least he confirmed that they weren't a dark friend. I guess. I mean, it's not really confirmed. Maureen's just kind of guessing. Yeah. Probably not evil. I mean, she really can't tell unless the person is, like, a gray man, maybe? Or Patton Fane. Or Patton Fane. But Patton Fane's, like, extra evil. He's, like, double-dipped evil. Yeah. Patton Fane redefines what it means to be evil. Wow. He's something worse. Some might say he's something worse. Yeah, so Perrin goes to see the Aiel and releases him from the cage. It's a man named Gaul, and Perrin tells him that he's a blacksmith, which is important, retroactively. Yeah, I totally, like, I'll just spoil that Gaul is a character going forward. Yeah. But I completely forgotten that Gaul is the one that Perrin frees here, and that makes a lot of things make more sense, because I just sort of thought Gaul was a generic Aielman. No, so I remembered that Gaul was the one going forward, but... Um, since Aiel have their whole thing with blacksmiths, like, it's important that Perrin basically releases him and goes, here's my name, here's my job, it's the thing that you all care about. Is it because they're big fight people, so it's important to have your... Kinda? They big just, fight forger? They just have cultural stuff about blacksmiths. It's not, like, revering. But they're respected as a class. They discuss that Gaul is looking for he who comes with the dawn. And Perrin's like, hey, You're I in the wrong place. Guy. Yeah, he's like, I know that guy. You're going to want to turn around. And then suddenly, a dozen white cloaks appear. And Gaul asks Perrin if he dances. Uh, together, they kill the white cloaks very quickly. And Gaul runs off after another thanks, wishing Perrin water and shade. The Aiel are really cool. No sunburns for you today. <laughs> no. Well, because he was just, like, taking out the white cloaks in armor with his bare hands. I wonder why he wouldn't just pick up one of their swords. Hmm. Huh. 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 Uh, hmm. Wait, why are you saying that? Well, because I know it's a thing. They don't use swords. Oh. That's why they give him, like, that's why they give Rand the bad stares. They're like, what are you doing? Okay. Well, oh, wow, you remember. That's a detail right there. Wow. I can remember details. I can't, so. My eyebrows. <laughs> my eyebrows why. are raised. 
That's I why mean, I'm Tyler's the one who's told anything. me about 10 times about this really cool character in this series he's reading who bases his moral oh code on the most moral person he decides in the room. Shut he up. has told me about this character so many times as if every single time it's new and radical to me when it's not. So I think I have a right to say I remember things. The last half dozen times have been a joke. Have they? Jokes don't have to be funny. <laughs> Is this marriage? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> anyway, uh, the woman with the divided skirts was watching all of this go down, and before Perrin can catch her, Lan shows up, and he's like, Why? <laughs> and Perrin's like, I don't know, I just kind of did it. Lan's like, Fine, we're going. Someone once told me the world was going to roll me, and I had to free this eel from a cage. Oh, I thought that was Lan saying <laughs> the world was going to roll me, and then we took these kids out of their village. <laughs> but Min uh, didn't tell him that. No. Or is this a new spring reference? Don't worry about it. Chapter 35, The Falcon. They make their way back to the inn, and Perrin gets loyal up to go. He grabs stuff, and on the way out, spit dogs continue to exist. <laughs> Thank you for the heads up. Uh, they get out of town and onto a ship. Uh, Miss Divided Skirts jumps on at the last second. There's one thing. Yeah. So there's a bit where Perrin and Loyal are talking. Mm-hmm. And Perrin says, I believe you're coming to like danger. Loyal, you must be crazy. Then Loyal says, I'm only fixing the mood in my head for my book. I have to put it all in. I believe I am coming to like it. Adventuring, of course. I have to like it if I wish to write of it. And if Loyal is a Robert Jordan insert character, what does this mean? Uh, listen, we don't have time to get into this. Are you sure? What does it mean? Robert Jordan has to like this. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he finds the gender dynamics of, <laughs> I don't know. Like, that's the first thing that springs to mind when I think of the series, honestly, is the bad gender dynamics. What is the term for it? Is it biological essentialism? Kind of, yeah. But I mean, is Robert Jordan, like, trying to recapture some thrill? I don't know. Never mind. You mean It's like, not important. He was in the Vietnam War. Yeah, maybe there's some uh, trauma happening in this book. Yeah, my understanding is that that's why, like, battles are described from a very top-down view and are specifically not described in a, like, hyper-gory first person is because he was like, I already did that. I don't want to think about it while I write it. Which kind of sucks. Loyal continues to be self-insert. Yeah. Yeah, I should clarify. Not sucks is, like, a position to take. Sucks is, like, wow, that's too bad that that happened. Yeah, that war was too bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not gonna make that joke on <laughs> on recording. Uh, yeah. So, the Divided Riding Skirts jumps onto the boat... Yeah, she has an herbal scent about her, light and fresh, with dark, tilted eyes. I hope you don't get tired of this description. Well, Perrin can smell people very well. Uh, she's a hunter of the horn, and she has an interest in Perrin and in Menetherin. 
whatever that is. She calls herself Mandarb, and Perrin <laughs> starts laughing. And he's like, the horse is named Mandarb. We can't have two characters named the same thing. And she says, okay, well, my real name is Zareen Bashir. I will instead go by Fail, which means falcon. Perrinigan Falcon. Also, all of the incredible amount of falcon imagery that's been happening in this book. Birds. About Perrin and, and like, birds. look out for a falcon. Prophecy, 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 prophecy. Prophecy. Dabs in prophecy. <laughs> He's like, this is a coincidence. This is just a little coinky-dink. So that brings us to chapter 36, Daughter of the Night, which is a very long one. So Perrin finds his cabin and goes to lay down, finding himself in the wolf dream. There's a line where he's trying to, like, pep talk himself. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he makes a blacksmithing metaphor about his life, of course. Mm-hmm. But then he says, no, my life is more than iron to be hammered into shape. Which almost sounds thematic, but I have no idea what it means. Mm-hmm. Is this important? Ah, <laughs> uh, I mean... Are the metaphors in this series ever important? You know what? Good point. <laughs> Sometimes they are, I guess. The series oh. isn't about anything. I mean, is it about anything at the point where you are in your own personal reading? No. I just wow. finished Lord of Chaos. Oh, nice. I'm like two-thirds of the way done with fire, uh, uh, Fires of Heaven. I just finished reading this section of chapters today. I hate you. <laughs> Why? Oh. They're, they're just telling the truth. I think it's because he took on the role of being the big main host, even though there's technically not one host, and he does all the note-taking, and it stresses him out. I do Whereas I can just casually read it and then formulate opinions and express them to the world. No, it was just a joke I wish I had been able to make. Um... It's about being able to embark your progress as the only place you could possibly be, which is right here at the section we're reading. I'm just mad I didn't get to say it. That's all. So, the metaphors don't matter. Perrin is asleep. Um, Hopper appears and brings Perrin to a place where Baalzaman is meeting with three of the men who serve him. And he destroys one of them for failing. <laughs> just, like, immolates him. Obliterated, you say. And then he urges the other two to avoid a similar fate and to not fail. More like to not fail, am I right, guys? Not all at once. <laughs> when they're gone, Lanfear appears to talk to Balsamon and admonishes him for doing nothing with the 3,000 years he's been free except to poorly manipulate Aesidai. And even then, they're not actually doing anything. Yeah, that's a bit slackery. What's yeah. he doing? What are you doing, Balsamon? I mean, this also seems very insolent for Lanfear to be talking to Balsamon this way. Yeah. Thinking emoji. We'll talk about that three episodes from now. Is she secretly his mom? What Whoa. does that even mean? <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to think of some random dramatic reveal. I mean... We'll mark that one down in the prediction log. We yeah. don't have. Let me go ahead and mark it wrong as well. <laughs> Beyond's just doing like a, yeah, okay, face. I mean, it didn't sound like they were very invested in the guess. 
No. No. Uh, Their conversation ends, and Perrin and Hopper talk for a moment. Uh, We learn that all wolves that are, have ever been, or will ever be, exist in the dream. And then Hopper hops. Hopper just, like, his model slides into the sky. (laughs) (laughs) Really Uh, bad graphics. Yeah, exactly. It's like, um, it's like in Pokemon. Like, when a Pokemon uses fly, and they just ascend into the sky without doing anything that's definitely how i saw hopper going away and parents like it's so beautiful <laughs> yeah he's like crying <laughs> um which listen i was crying but for very different reasons uh so finally we see Ran, uh Perrin sees Rand fighting some shadow spawn in the night and uh he tries to warn rand and in exchange gets burned Rand's like, no, you. Rand is very toxic at this point in time. Rand is just a toxic individual. Cue uh, the Britney Spears music. Don't. Please. I wasn't thinking that type of toxic. Okay. Not the sexy toxic, but uh, like the... Uh... <laughs> well, it depends on what you're looking for. <laughs> if, listen, if you were the daughter of the night... I'm just going to insert the music sting from toxic. Right. Thanks. Now. Daughter of the Night just makes me think of red light districts and sexy times. So like that kind of toxic. Yeah. So Lanfear is Roxanne. Great. You don't gotta put the red dress tonight. Did you like smoke an entire pack of cigarettes? That's what he sounds like when he sings. He's like, Roxanne! Okay. (laughs) Oh, boy. Anyway. And Perrin gives it a think, and he's like, does this mean the Forsaken are loose? It's yeah. Like, my I, my I dude, just, you were there at the end of the first book. I saw the Forsaken talking, and one of them clearly referred to the other by the name of one of the Forsaken. What could it mean? But I mean, also, he saw Agenor and Balthamel at the end of the first book. Yeah. Yeah, listen. Nobody ever accused Perrin of being very smart. Literally a dog. Woof. Bork. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Perrin wakes up uh, and goes to tell Moraine everything and is clearly smarter than Nave, at least, because he doesn't just omit incredibly important pieces of information. What a special treat for the readers. Yeah. Characters being open with each other. Which is, you know... On the one hand, I don't know, it almost feels hypocritical to be like, oh, thank God, Perrin told the truth, and at the same time be like, oh, thank God, Matt knows how to lie. But, like, (laughs) they're very different contexts. Together, they make kind of a functioning human being. Yeah. Better than Rand. So, Moraine's like, well, don't worry, you're not going to start channeling, so don't worry about that. And then she reaffirms. And he's like, I wasn't worried about that, but now I am. Yeah. Thanks. I'd forgotten about that. Uh, Yeah. She reaffirms that the plan is we're going to go to Ilian and then we're going to go to Tyr and hopefully we're either going to beat him there or catch him once he is there. One thing in this section that I did like is talking about Moraine, uh, listening to Perrin's story. She says, 
She had watched him without expression, except that those dark eyes had examined every word as it came out of his mouth, weighed it, measured it, held it up to the light. Which is just like an extra little bit of description of like just how much she's sitting there paying full attention to him. Uh, she also she, says, She's mysterious. Yeah. She also says, Do not question me, she said coldly. You do not know which questions to ask, and you would not comprehend and you would comprehend less than half the answers if I gave them, which I will not. And she's telling which, the truth. Yeah. Which, like, she's not allowed to lie. Huh. Uh, so Perrin is like, great. Good talking to you, Moraine. I'm gonna go. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, so he goes topside, and Zareen is there watching him, and he wishes that his life was simpler. Uh, we cut back to Rand at a campsite. He's losing touch with reality. More than before. Uh... A group of guards and a merchant come to the site, asking to spend the night in the same place. And they're like, is that going to be a problem? And Rand's like, no, no problem at all. <laughs> oh, God. And then he creates a sort of fire and kills them all in like 10 seconds. Yeah. Rand is a terrible host. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the part that Tyler talked about before where I texted him afterwards like, this is a tough look for Rand. Yeah. Like, if Rand was, like, fully insane here, I could sort of reconcile this. But I'm just going to say, nothing later in this book or later in the series indicates that he's more insane here than he is at any point further in the series. I mean, he's definitely more sane later on. I just don't is think he? there's... Why? There's I mean, nothing at the end of this book that indicates that he's suddenly more sane than he was. Well, that's what I'm saying, is, like, he displays traits of being more sane, at least for a while, but there is nothing, you are correct in that there is nothing that's, like, this is denoting why he was insane then and why he is sane now. He just is less insane later on. He just sasked. Yeah, he just had little temporary sanity. And started beheading people and then using the power to line up their bodies kneeling to him. Oh, yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> this is fine. Also, there's a guy here that Rand doesn't remember having killed who's carrying a knife. Yeah. And he looks very plain. Is this supposed to imply that they were all dark friends and he was right to kill them? Which, in that case, eh. No, I mean... Even if he, like, accidentally did the correct thing because they were all dark friends, he didn't choose to kill them because he, they were dark friends. He just chose to kill them because he's going crazy and he's probably not slept in, like, a week. He needs Snickers. Yeah, seriously. Rand's the very bad roommate. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, Rand, can you... You didn't do the dishes last night. We're gonna get ants. And Rand beheads you with a sword made of fire. <laughs> It sets your body kneeling to him, and he's like, this is the correct way, isn't it? Yeah, Rand never really grapples with this later either. And, nope. like, he killed a woman here, and he, like, never does that. No. I think he's... Yeah. I think this is very much like Matt's thing, where he just doesn't remember a bunch of it. Great. I'm so glad this was shown to us then. Oh, yeah, it's not good. I mean... Like, without having seen the, I guess I'll ask Beyond, without having seen this particular section, would you have 
believed that Rand was going crazy? Or like, was this the thing that actually convinced you? Did you need to see this? I did not need to see this. Well, then great. This was unnecessary. But I mean, Gratuitous. Setting him up as crazy right now, I'll just say, doesn't lead to anything later. No. That's disappointing. I mean, I guess it kind of leads to, like, the knowledge that Rand could be crazy in the future. And, like, he is crazy in the future, but it's not... Like, it's not linear. He, like, jumps at the end of book two, or, like, start of book three, and then is crazy through book three, and then goes back down to just slightly above normal, and then it becomes a climb. Like, he's just crazy for this one book for no reason. That's ridiculous and unnecessary. Yes. And I dislike it. Yes. It's almost as if Dragon Reborn jumps way ahead of the rest of the series, and then the beginning of Shadow Rising has to pull back a little. Hmm. Stop accelerating. Calm down, sir. Oh, I guess this might have been at the point where he thought this series would have only been six books. Oh, maybe. That would make more sense, actually. If he thinks this is the halfway point (laughs) of the series, this makes a lot more sense. Yeah, actually, that... Get on with it. We got places to be. We gotta go crazy now. Like, I'm now done with the sixth book, and I'm not halfway through the series. Nope. You're still a book away from being halfway done. How's it feel? Feels slow. Welcome to the beginning of the extended portion of the slog. Also, people talk about the end of book six as, like, this amazing moment, and I don't know. You and I will talk once Beyond leaves the room. We'll get to it. Yeah. Yeah, so Rand steals a horse that... (laughs) Rand steals the horse that the merchant was riding, which is still in place because her headless body is holding the reins. And, like, this is maybe the most gratuitous the violence in the series has been up to this point. I'm surprised the horse didn't run away because they are skittish. Well, maybe that one isn't. No, like, horses are prey animals. Not Mandarb. (laughs) Horses are prey animals. Not Mandarb. I don't think you understand how much anxiety horses have. I don't think you understand Mandarb. (laughs) You should read New Spring. We should read Stormlight Archives. Are there non-prey horses in that There are. Wow. Horrifying. There are massive, intelligent horses. Now I kind of want to read it. (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah, he steals a horse and he thinks about how he's got to get the colander. And uh, we're out. That's the end of that chapter and the end of this section. It was pretty quick. Yeah, not a ton in this section. But like, even then, it at least never felt slow. Which I appreciate. I mean, there were parts that were like... I, I skimmed the exposition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of exposition to be skimmed, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't one of those sections that's just Egwene, Elaine, and then they sitting around talking about doing something for two chapters before they finally decide to do something, and then it cuts away to a different character. And so, like, you don't even get the payoff. Literary edging. Ew. Whoa! Okay! A lot of paper cuts involved there. <laughs> uh, 
Wow. Am I wrong? I feel like I'm in my Dizzy animation. <laughs> uh, next week we're going to read chapters 37 through 44. And then we're kind of in the home stretch. Like, those last um, 10, 11 chapters are kind of just... Like, everybody moving around one area, trying to run into somebody else, but they just can't. <laughs> the next section has the good part. My favorite part of the... Well, one of my... This is every single time he talks. This is my favorite part. We're <laughs> almost to my favorite part. Okay. We just need to continue and we'll get to my favorite part. I'm literally going to kill you. Like, actually, <laughs> I'm going to wait until you're asleep and kill you. I'm going to end your life tonight. I want you to understand. I mean, then I don't have to do my 12-hour shift. Nice. Pound it. Yeah, the next section has dance with me. It's really good. But we'll get to it. Uh, Jesse, where can people find us? Uh, People can find us on our Twitter, at Wheel Reading, which I'll have the link in the description. And if you enjoy what we do, leave a review on itunes or your podcast service let us know what you think uh, also tweet at us if you have some comments we'd love to hear from anyone who listens to the series yeah cool well this has been the third wheel i'm tyler i'm beyond and i'm jesse and we'll see you next time